One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So they all sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up all the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Rob. I want to add my welcome to what you've already heard from Carl, who is in rare form today, Carl. (laughs) Mostly in a good way. Uh, listen, we, uh, we, we come here every week to worship God, and I love the way Carl led us in that. And uh, we're, we're learning how to worship here at Fellowship. We're learning how to become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. And now we get to a place where we get to hear God speak to us through his word. And I love the way Carl set up that reading because I do want... God's word just to wash over us this morning. As we listen, as we learn, as we dig in, as we study this text, and as God speaks to us through it. My wife, Jody, is out of town for a few days. She's taking a personal retreat, which we didn't know she needed that as part of her annual rhythm until a year ago. She was about to go crazy. And we finally said, I think you might need to get away for a few days. And she was so happy for that invitation. And she came back saying, this is going to be something I do every year at this time. So she is away this weekend. So I'm, I'm happy for her. What that means for me is I'm home with the girls and, you know, having to do all the things that she would do, plus the things that I would normally do. And um, one of the things that I've become keenly aware of is how often I have to think about sourcing food. There's this constant question, dad, what are we going to eat? And it comes up more than once every day. (laughs) And so I was, you know, wrestling with this and trying to figure out how to navigate all that. And I thought, man, this is just a lot of food that we're having to think about getting. And it got me curious. And I wonder how much food someone eats in the course of their life. So I did a little research and and thanks to uh, Google, I was able to find that very, very easily. 37 tons of food you will eat in your lifetime on average. That's eight elephants. <laughs> That's a lot of food. And then I thought, and it costs a lot of money for that much food. So I did some research on that as well. And, and uh, this one, in September 2021, there was some research done by state that, that lists for every state, you know, what your food cost is and all these things and calculates it out to $449,000 for the state of Tennessee over the course of an average lifetime. Now that was September 21. I'm thinking prices have risen at least 12% since then. So I'm calling it $500,000, half a million dollars you'll spend per person feeding yourself or feeding other people. Now, 
Food, obviously, in terms of our biological processes, it's our greatest need. You know, it's the fuel that we have. So you picture, you picture an old steam locomotive. They had to shovel that coal in there to keep that locomotive going. We've got to shovel that food in. It's how our body processes and gets energy. And, you know, we know how this works scientifically. Think about how much energy you spend getting more energy just to fuel the machine. How much of our labor and toil on this earth is spent earning the money so that we can buy the food or taking the time to prepare the food and doing all that kind of just comes in. Food's a really, really big deal. Jesus knows this. When he lived 33-ish years on earth as a human being walking on this planet, he understood very personally what it meant to be hungry, what it meant to be full. Uh, Don't forget there was a time of his life where he intentionally did not eat food for 40 days I've never done a fast that long. Maybe some of you have had, but I've been hungry in different times of my life, um, not from lack of of, um, provision, but but from some fasting. And I know how that affects me. I know how it affects my mind. I know how that affects my body. Maybe some of you have been in circumstances in life where through no choice of your own, you've been hungry. You've been in a situation where you didn't have enough food to eat. You know what it feels like to go to bed, wishing you had more. Jesus knew all that. And so we get to the sixth chapter of John. Go ahead and open your Bibles to where we are this morning. And we have a whole chapter that's about food. And specifically bread in particular, because in the cultural context, when Jesus was walking the earth, bread was food. Like they went synonymous with each other. Do you have enough bread? You know, we talk about our daily bread. And, you know, for us in our modern context, bread's kind of a side dish. But for them back then, it's what they ate. It was their staple. And every now and then they'd have a little meat. They'd have some vegetables, but that was more rare. It was mostly bread that they would eat. It was bread that was their sustenance. It's what sustained them. And so John chapter six, incidentally, one of the longest chapters in the whole gospel of John, we're gonna be here five weeks, including today. So this Sunday plus four more as we slowly walk through these verses in John chapter six. And we're gonna start with one of the highest points of Jesus' ministry, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus multiplies the bread and he multiplies the fish. And it's the only miracle that's listed in all four of the gospels. It's that significant, it's that important. And so we know that chapter by that. And then next week, there'll be another miracle story when he walks on the water. And then the rest of the chapter is all about bread. It's all about unpacking and explaining what the miracle of the loaves was all about. And so what's interesting about this chapter, it starts with one of the highest points of Jesus' ministry and ends with one of the lowest points of Jesus' ministry. And, and all along in between, he's building into his disciples. He's growing their faith. He's testing them because his plans are dependent upon them. And he knows for those plans to become a reality, there are some lessons they need to learn about bread. Let me start with the first four verses of John chapter six. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. These first four verses give us the context for the miracle. We're going to see the geography and we're going to see the time period. Let's start with the geography. It's the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. I want to give you a map so you can kind of get an idea of what this is. So you see the Sea of Galilee here. Now this, this red marker up here at the top is not where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place. This is Capernaum. 
If you remember, Capernaum is where a lot of the gospels uh, take place. Capernaum was Jesus's home base. And he operated from Capernaum and would go all, all around different places. Occasionally he'd go to this side of the sea, which is where we believe this miracle took place, probably right about over here. Now, why do we believe it happened over there? Number one, we know that he went to the other side of the sea. And even to this day, if you go to Israel, you know, the development that's around the Sea of Galilee is on this side of the sea. So over here is pretty desolate. So anytime it says you went to the other side, the reference points usually Capernaum or the villages surrounding Capernaum. And so he would have gone to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We also know it was a desolate place. It was lonely. There weren't a lot of villages around. There's also some mountaintops right here. It says Jesus went up on the mountain to be with his disciples. So probably right in this area is where this miracle took place. Now, most times people have this vision of the Sea of Galilee as like the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. It's not even close to that. It's a very large lake. So to give you some scope for this, uh, let me just you know, put some stuff, mark this up a little bit so you can have an idea. It's 13 miles from the northern tip to the southern tip. It's eight miles across. So 13 by eight. Now, I wanna help you understand the size of this. Uh, imagine that the Sea of Galilee were laid over top of Brentwood and Franklin, Tennessee. And so let, let, me, let me point out some things. You'd have I-65 as the Jordan River, okay, coming down right here. This actually works amazingly well. Like I, I, I geeked out on this this week and I was like, this actually could be right here. Now. It just so happens, where are we? Well, if, you know, this is Concord Road right here. Guess what? This is us. We're at Capernaum. Now, the miracle happened over here, and this probably would have been um, Ravenwood High School. I mean, that's, I, I mapped out the distance. That's about the distance. So you kind of go around, you go down Wilson Pike, and you go over Ravenwood High School. Now, down here on the southern tip, this is 840, coming down this way. So you got I-65, you got 840. You got uh, down, uh, downtown Franklin is right right about there. You can kind of just look where you live. Now, that's the Sea of Galilee. It's like, it's not big. It gives you an idea of scope. So Jesus is doing all his miracles, primarily right around Capernaum and these villages. He, he comes over to this side. They probably take a boat. They might've walked. And all the people from these villages in this region, they all come down. And when it says 5,000, we'll talk about this more later. There's actually more than 5,000 because 5,000 was just the men. That was the population, it was most of the population of the whole region. These are tiny little villages. This is not a large area. That gives you an idea. That gives you a sense of the scope of this. Now let's go back to our verses. Um, there's one other detail in this passage I want to highlight, and that's the time frame. Passover was at hand. That's significant. There are three Passovers mentioned in the Gospel of John. First Passover is when he cleansed the temple. Second Passover is when he fed 5,000. And the third Passover is when he died and was resurrected. Those three significant things all happen on Passover. And John is kind of mapping us through the three Passovers in the ministry life of Jesus. It's significant that Passover is described as the feast of the Jews. All their holidays were feasts. <laughs> they had lots of feasts. Why is this one called the feast of the Jews? It's their most nationalistic holiday. It's, it's their 4th of July. Think about it that way. This is when they remembered their independence from Egypt, when Moses led them out of Egypt and God did all the plagues and rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now imagine us celebrating 4th of July 
under the condition if our nation was occupied by an enemy and we did not have freedom. And every year, 4th of July would come and we, we would look back to Independence Day and then we would long forward to the next Independence Day. These people had been promised another independence. The Messiah would come and they would finally be free. And every year it was a nationalistic fervor of when is this Messiah going to come? Maybe it is this year. Now, that is important to understand that this miracle happened around the time of Passover. Let's continue in verse five. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A few observations about these verses. Number one, notice how mindful Jesus is of people's needs. He's, he's up teaching with his disciples. It was meant to just be him and them. That was the point of this excursion over to the more desolate part of the Sea of Galilee. But guess what? All the crowds followed him because of the miracles. Now, Jesus doesn't shoo them away. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, guys, this is my private time with my disciples. He sees them and his mind immediately goes to their needs. A, a, a different parallel passage says, he saw them that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' heart is for the needs of people. And in particular on this day, he knew that they were hungry. Secondly, he already has a plan in mind. John goes out of his way to tell us that. He knew what he was going to do, but he doesn't say to the disciples, watch this. He invites them into his plan and he invites them in with this question. Remember questions from Jesus are always important. Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Jesus knew they weren't gonna buy bread. But he's asking a question to get their gears turning. Now, the question is directed to Philip. Uh, many scholars believe it was because Philip was from Bethsaida, which was the closest village to where they were. And he would have known the area. And so Jesus kind of looks over at Philip. Hey, is there any place around where we might be able to buy enough bread for these people? And, and Philip instantly doesn't have to think about it. He's like, there's no way. They, they, even if we had 200 denarii, which by the way is eight months income for an average laborer, eight months. Even if we had that much food, we couldn't even start to feed them. Like that would only just get a, a, a little and, and not even that for each person. The answer to Jesus's question, where are we to buy bread is, there's no way we're buying bread for this many people. It's impossible. We don't have enough resources, Philip was saying. And Oftentimes, the work of Jesus begins with the recognition of our own limitations. I think that's what Jesus is getting at with his question. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. The men sat down about 5,000 in number. Let me go ahead and talk about the number. We know explicitly from Matthew's record of this same event that the 5,000 referred only to the men. Listen to Matthew 14, 21. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. 
So this is the way they would count back then. They, you know, their censuses, for example, they would just count the head of the households. They would, they would count the men, and, and, and that's what we have here. So you can do the math. We don't know how common it would have been for the, the wives and the other women to come, but there would, definitely would have been some women there, would have been some children there. Let's just say, conservatively speaking, we doubled the number from 5,000 to 10,000. I think that's conservative. So you're talking about 10,000 people. Again, just to help you get a, a scope of that, uh, if you've ever seen a, a Nashville Sounds game at that baseball stadium, that's 10,000 people. You know, picture yourself there watching a game. You're looking around. Everybody's hungry. Now, at a stadium like that, they've had truckloads of food. They've been preparing for days for that event. They've got a small army of vendors and people to sell food and make the food and all these kinds of things. That's the scope that we're talking about here. In light of that need, five little loaves and two little fish are laughable. What I love about Andrew is he knows they're laughable. He said, what are they for so many? But he brings them anyway. He brings this little boy to Jesus anyway. Andrew knows it's not enough, but he brings it anyway. I think this is instructive for us. Uh, here's a quote from Tom Wright. So often in life, we ourselves have no idea what to do, but the starting point is always to bring what is there to the attention of Jesus you can never tell what he's going to do with it. When you don't know what to do, bring what you have to the attention of Jesus. You never know what he's going to do with it. There is a little detail that we find only in John's account of this miracle, and that is that the loaves were made of barley. Why is that significant? Well, barley was the bread of the poorest of the poor people. So again, we get another clue. These were poor people. And you already knew that because this is Galilee. It's the rural part of the country. It's even a more desolate place. These people have walked probably most of the day to get over to see Jesus. They're hungry. They have nothing to eat. They're already poor. Many of them may have been, been so hungry that they were not in good physical condition to begin with. Now, a reminder, Jesus understood hunger in a way that most of us in this room do not. I've never actually thought I was going to die from a lack of food. Maybe some in this room have, but, but most of us haven't. Some of y'all remember in the fall, we, we had Ryan and Jazeera Boyette here. Uh, they're from Sudan. Ryan's originally from the U.S., went to Sudan to do mission work, met Jazeera, who is Sudanese, and they got married, and they've, they've been here studying at Vanderbilt, and they're going to go back in a few months and do some work in Sudan. Well, if you remember Jazeera, when she was telling us her life story, she told the story of, of her when she's, I think, about 12 years old, and her younger sister and she uh, were only with their mom because their dad had been cut off on the other side of the front lines of the war that had broken out, and they didn't have any food and they were starving to death. And it was particularly dangerous for her younger sister who her belly was swollen and, and she could you know, hardly move and she, she just had a matter of days to live. So if you remember the story, Jazeera's mom left their home and went out in trying to find some food, just a little bit of food for her daughter, who was gone for a number of days. 
finally came back and was holding just a little bit of food. And I remember Jazeera kind of like did, did this. I mean, it was just like a small amount of food. And that food was enough to save her sister's life. Jesus sees the needs of the people and he's going to provide for the needs of the people. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Can you imagine being a hungry people, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, and then all of a sudden it's just an, an abundance of provision. It's like, they just probably just snuck some in their pockets. They have pockets back then, whatever they would have been carrying. And, and, and then at some point they just, I've had enough. Like this is, this is just more food than they can imagine. I love what Jesus does, right? As he's doing his miracle, when he had given thanks. Now that whole phrase in English is actually just one Greek word, believe it or not. And the, the word is, well, th this, is, this is the root of it. Eucharisteo. Do you recognize a word that's a little familiar to us in that word? Shout it out. Eucharist. Okay, so you've got Eucharist right here. That, that, as you know, some denominations call the Lord's Supper Eucharist. But it means thanksgiving. It means giving thanks. In fact, if you break that word Eucharist down, you have a prefix you, which you may be familiar with. You means good or sometimes well. And charis. You know what charis means? Grace. Our, our, Jody and I named our third daughter Charis from from the Greek word for grace. So good grace. So you say grace over a meal, you're, you're recognizing that this is undeserved favor from the Lord. What you're about to eat is undeserved favor. Jesus is blessing this bread. When, when, when he had given the grace, and he said, this is a good grace from the Father, he distributed it to those who were seated, also the fish, as much as they wanted. Uh, when Jesus Eucharisteo, when he gave thanks, he more than likely would have used the traditional Hebrew blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Think about that. God brings forth bread from the earth. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, you know. I know where bread comes from. It, it doesn't pop out of the earth. Human beings make bread. It goes in the oven, it cooks, this kind of thing. That is true, but I want you to think about this. All we're doing when we make bread is rearranging the raw ingredients that God put on the earth. And the only reason we're able to do that is because God gave us the creativity and the intelligence to cook. It all comes from God. So yes, God brings forth bread from the earth, to feed us from his hand. Think about that when you sit down after church to lunch and you say grace over your meal. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was doing even more than just providing nourishment and sustenance to very hungry people. He was putting on display the abundant generosity of God he was feeding them from his hand, the second person of the Trinity. The food came from his hand. He asked the good grace blessing of the Father as he distributed the food. God is a generous God. He's a God of abundance. Let 
Let's see what happens after. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Boy, the lesson for the disciples could not have been more right in front of their face. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. And so, you know, think about it from their perspective. They would have been out with the baskets, passing the food out. And, and, and they realized that, that while they were attending with Jesus to the needs of the crowd, Jesus was also attending to their own needs. And they bring back 12 baskets. In the words of Rudolf Boltmann, after all had been satisfied, there's more left over than there was at the beginning. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. If you've been with us through our study of John, you know that this is a key word in John's gospel, sign. There are seven signs in John's gospel. And they're miracles, but they're more than just miracles. They're, they're particular miracles that point to something, just like a sign points and these miracles point. What are they pointing to? Well, Jesus, yes, more specifically, his identity as God's son. These are the kind of miracles that only God can do. So first sign, he turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Second sign, he healed the Roman official son. And the significance of that one was it happened just by his word from a distance the word of God healed. Third sign, he healed the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda who, who was waiting for some you know, superstitious thing to happen in the water. And it was Jesus who came and found him. God found him and healed him. And now the fourth sign, Jesus has miraculously provided bread to thousands of hungry people. Now, this is when I want to bring you back to that detail early in the verses when it said it was the time of Passover. And I said that really matters that it's the time of Passover. Every year at Passover, they, they retold the story of the Exodus. Who led the people out of Egypt? This is actually a real question. Inter interact with me. <laughs> Moses. Yeah, Moses. Moses. Ultimately God, of course, but God led them through Moses. It's hard to overstate how important Moses is to the history of Israel, uh, Theologically, spiritually, the way they understood the relationship with God. Moses was their mediator. Moses was the way God spoke to them. Moses was the way God led them. It was through Moses, the mediator between God and mankind. But before Moses died, God told Moses, he said, I will send another prophet like you to the people. And so in Deuteronomy 16, 15, this is what Moses tells the people before he dies. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Listen to him. So in all those hundreds of years, in about 1,300 years between Moses and Jesus, the people always say, is it now time for God to raise up a prophet like Moses who will mediate between man and God and will lead us out of our oppression and lead us into freedom. Now, remember in the wilderness, God fed the people with manna. Manna was bread 
from heaven, bread from the hand of God. And so put two and two together, 1,300 years after Moses, the Israelites are once again gathering in a wilderness place, eating bread at the time of Passover. And they're realizing Jesus has just recreated the miracle of Moses. He is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The story takes a very interesting turn in the last verse of our passage. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. How easily the human heart tries to use God for our own ambitions. Now, Jesus can perceive it all. He, he, he knew their physical hunger, but he also saw their hearts. And, and what he saw was this nationalistic appetite that, that yes, was to be fulfilled one day, but their hearts weren't right yet. And so Jesus, if you think about it this way, he removes himself for the sake of the people. In other words, it's not time for him to be made king, not in that sense, because the hearts of the people are still far from God. They, they've, they've received bread, they've received physical food, but their hearts are not yet cleansed. That would come later at the next Passover. You see, this verse is on John's part, an intentional callback to John 2, 23 to 25. I'll put that on the screen. This was the previous Passover in John chapter two. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What, what is in man? Our heart, our heart, in, 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 in our case, hearts that are fragmented, hearts that are broken. And so what Jesus knows is until he can heal the heart of mankind, he cannot be our king. We must be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We must be able to receive true bread. I want to apply the feeding of the 5,000 miracle to our own lives. And I want to do this from two perspectives. I want to look at it from the perspective of the crowd and the perspective of the disciples. The crowds were receiving the disciples were working. They were servants in, in the picture that we have. And so two lessons related to that. Lesson number one, start with the disciples. Jesus can do anything he wants, but he chooses to work through us. Jesus could have done the manna thing. He could have seen the people coming, looked over his disciples, said, Get, look up, it's about to come down from the sky, you know, would have rained bread, you know? He could have done it that way. What did he do instead? He, he asked a question. 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Do you remember uh, back after Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well and, and he reveals to her, I, I am the one to come. I'm the Messiah. And she runs back to her village to tell people she's found the Messiah. And right then the disciples come out. And they're like, why was he talking to that Samaritan woman? And, and then they, they see that he didn't want the food that they brought him. And like, does he have food somewhere that we don't know about? What does Jesus say? My food is to do the work of the Father. And then he says, look up. The fields are white for harvest. It's time for us to go to work. And so once again, he's engaging his disciples. He's saying, I, I want you to be the ones that I will work through. I want you to pass out the bread. I, I want you to go face to face with these hungry people and hand them my provision. Now, as soon as that question was asked, where are we to buy bread? The disciples started to scramble because he put them in a situation that they had no resources for. Jesus will often do that to you. But the end result of that was Andrew comes up with something. And it's not much. It's literally a little boy with a small lunch. And he's like, I, I, I don't think this is enough, but here it is. And Jesus says, it's more than enough. This is how Jesus works. Isn't it laughable that, that you or I could, could think that we have anything to bring to the table to God for him to use to do the kind of heart transforming work that he's up to all over the world? Isn't it laughable that our small offerings could be used by God? That's exactly what he wants to use. We are the disciples of Jesus in our time and place. And so... He's asking us a question this morning. He asked the disciples a question 2,000 years ago this morning. Through this text, he's asking us, I think here's the question Jesus is asking us. What does he put in your hand? What does he put in your hand? Like, what do you have? It, it may seem laughable. God can't use that. What do you have? A little time? A little money? A skill? Maybe a relationship? with somebody, like, what has he put in your hand? Jesus wants you to just offer it. Like, bring his attention. I don't have much. This is what I got. I thought about this. I was writing a sermon this week. I, like, I didn't have a lot of time. I didn't have a lot of energy. I didn't have any insight for it. And yesterday, I was just like, I, this is what I have. This is what I have. What would it look like for us to be a church where we just say, this is what I have. And you know what God told me? He said, the smaller it is, the better. He can do anything he wants. He chooses to work through us. Are you in? I want to be in. Lesson number two. The simplest but most important lesson of all. Jesus is the bread. Maybe physical hunger is a tool that God uses throughout the course of our life to help us know we're hungry. You feel it in your stomach. You get some food, you satisfy your hunger, only you get hungry again. So you get a little more food, you put it in your stomach, it satisfies, and then you get hungry again. And you get a little more food and it satisfies and you get hungry again. And that happens in a repeated rhythm all the days of your life until you die. 
hunger might be an inconvenience, but hunger is a sign of life. And hunger may just be pointing you to something greater. What we're going to see in the rest of chapter 6 over the next four weeks is that Jesus uses the feeding of the 5,000 as an object lesson to lead to a much greater invitation, the invitation to eat the real bread. And the real bread that God offers is Jesus himself. Later in this chapter, it's going to get really hard because Jesus is going to say these words, I am the bread of life. And he's going to say, if you're not willing to eat my flesh, you have no part in me. And the people are going to be confused and they're going to be disgusted and angry and they're going to leave him. The followers, not the 12, but the other followers. We're going to see that in chapter six. He's going to say some hard things that people will not understand or like, but at the center of all his words is this message. You are hungry for something to eat and it is me. As we walk through this chapter together over the next four weeks, I, I want to invite you to be thinking about what it means to you for Jesus to be the bread of life and what it means to you to eat him. I want to invite the band to come out. We're, we're going to sing a, a song or two in a minute, but, but it's also time for us to do our Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite the ushers to come down front you may have noticed when you came in, there were no communion elements out in the arcade. That was intentional because we wanted to put them all up front this morning. And I'll tell you why we wanted to do that. But ushers, just go ahead and come down. And ushers, what I'd like you to do is just each grab one of these baskets, but don't start distributing them yet. Just stay up front here. You can grab a basket and just stay up front. Let me tell you why we wanted to do it this way. We wanted to do it this way as a reminder that what you're about to hold in your hands, it all comes from a single source. It all comes from one place. It is the bread of the body of Jesus and the cup represents the blood of Jesus. And you all just hang here for a few minutes. So in, in just a moment, they're gonna walk through the crowds and, and, I, and I wanna put you in that place as if you are some of the 5,000 out on that hillside and the disciples of Jesus are coming with the baskets of food and, and they're gonna pass these baskets around. And, and listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, this, this table's for you. It's for you. If you've put your faith in Jesus at any point in your life, you've said, listen, you know, the, the death of Jesus was for me, my sin, he's, he's my sacrifice and the life of Jesus is for me. If that's you this morning, I want you to take the communion. For some of you, maybe it's just clicking for the first time. It's like, I need real bread. And if you feel that hunger in you, that's the work of Christ in you this morning. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust his death, his life and resurrection for you. And then take the communion element when it comes around and eat with us this morning for the first time. Before the ushers pass out these elements, we're going to bless God for them in the same way that Jesus would have. And, and so bow your heads. I, I'm going to read the words of the same blessing Jesus likely would have used. And after the blessing is done, the ushers can go and distribute the elements. Bow our heads. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, 
who brings forth bread from the earth.